Uh, Please turn with me in your Bibles to James chapter 2. James chapter 2. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for who you are. We're thankful that you are consistent in our lives, that you're merciful, that you're gracious. And as we look at faith tonight in your word, we pray that you would ignite faith within us, that we would trust you in a greater way, and that would be lived out in our lives. So Father, would you bless our time in your word, in Jesus' name, amen. James chapter 2, faith defined in two categories, if you're taking notes. The first category is faith with no partiality. We want to have a faith that doesn't have favoritism. And then we want a faith that's profitable or a faith that is alive. So no partiality and profitability. This chapter really examines our faith. And it's the theme for James in this book. Five chapters, very powerful We get the picture of a coach that's challenging us to get off the bench and really apply our Christian life and our Christian faith. And in these five chapters, these five short chapters, he mentions faith 12 times. What have we already seen in the book of James? It's been a couple of weeks. Appreciate Corey teaching for me last last week. But two weeks ago, we went through chapter one and we saw that faith is revealed in trial, isn't it? That, That trials refine and reveal our faith. And in those trials, faith knocks upon God's door for wisdom. It's desperate before God. God, would you give me your wisdom? Faith also is lived out as being a doer of God's word. As James is writing, he's writing to Jewish believers, and he seems to want to set things in order that are out of order. We'll find here in the first half of this chapter that there's those that are rich and they're getting treated better than those that are poor. And so, so James wants to set that right. He wants to rectify that. So join me in verse one. It says, my brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory with partiality. So verses one through 13, if you're taking notes, is faith that isn't partial. Faith that isn't partial. First James, he says, my brethren. He reminds them, You are my brothers and sisters in Christ. We are the family of God. He's writing to believers. Then he says, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. That word hold in the Greek is an imperative meaning that it's a command. It's telling us to possess faith in Jesus Christ, but there's also a negative And the negative is, faith in our Lord Jesus Christ shouldn't be expressed in partiality of how we treat people. That we shouldn't have those that we treat with favor and then others that we treat with disdain. Is partiality damaging amongst the people of God? Would it be damaging to what God would want to do in our fellowship if there were favorites? If if some got treated better than others? In some ways, if some got the the royal red carpet while other people got ignored. Well, we know from the Old Testament some of the damaging impact of favoritism. Jacob, he has 12 sons. Joseph is the 11th son and the only son of his loved wife. That's a problem if you have multiple wives. He practiced polygamy. Of course, he's going to love one wife the best, and so He loves Joseph the most. 
He didn't hide his favoritism. He gives Joseph a coat of many colors while the other guys just got Levi jackets. They just got plain jackets. Colorful clothes wasn't common. It was expensive. And here's Joseph walking around in his coat of many colors. So very naturally, the older brothers looked at Joseph with disdain. They should have checked their hearts. They, they should have examined their hearts, but they allowed their hearts to be overcome with bitterness. One day, Joseph, the golden boy, if you would, is sent to go examine the older brother's work to see how they're doing in the field. That was more than what they could take. And they decide to sell Joseph as a slave after considering killing him. It really destroyed and it really hurt that family. It'll hurt the family of God. It'll hurt our natural families. And God says, these two don't go together. Holding faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and partiality. When we declare Jesus as our Lord, it means that he's our master, that he gets to call the shots. And so God has given his love to everyone and he wants us to express our love to everyone. A few verses in the Old Testament that speak about partiality. In Proverbs 28 verse 21 it says to show partiality is not good. Leviticus 19:15 do not pervert justice, do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. Could you imagine you go to the court and here's somebody who's wealthy, and it, here's the standard for them. They're not really held accountable. There's no, no justice for them. But, but then if someone's poor, then they're going to have the book thrown, thrown at them. Proverbs 22.2 says, The rich and poor have this in common. The Lord's the maker of them all. That's kind of hard to digest, isn't it? God is sovereign, and he's the maker of the rich and the poor. In Malachi chapter 3, God says, because you've not followed my ways, but have shown partiality in the matters of the law. God's judging Israel because they showed partiality in matters of the law. Acts 10 verse 34, it says, then Peter opened his mouth and said, in truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. That's comforting that God doesn't have favorites, isn't it? I mean, really think about that. That means God doesn't love Max Lucado more than he loves us, if you're familiar with him. Or Francis Chan. Or Greg Laurie. Or Billy Graham. God doesn't have favorites. He's not a respecter of persons. When we're in Christ, that's the greatest position that we can have. So he sees all believers in his son, and because of that, we have open access to God. You are just as much God's son or daughter than your favorite Christian, your favorite author, that Christian that you think has it, has it all together. God is not the respecter of persons. But it's also convicting. It's comforting because God's not a respecter of persons, but we are, aren't we? And so we find these verses to, to be challenging and challenging for our faith. If we're living out our faith, then it should be one that doesn't show partiality. This is how it was being expressed in the church at this time. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings in fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes. So you got two guys coming to church. One guy's got the bling bling. He's got the rings. In Roman culture, rings were a sign of wealth. He comes in with fine apparel. It's very apparent that this person is wealthy. But then you'll also have someone who's poor who comes in in filthy clothes. 
This is what I think the church should be. The church should be a gathering place of God's people of all backgrounds. Amen? So it should be rich. It should be poor. It should be of every ethnic group. We're all coming in to worship God and it's equal footing at the cross. God doesn't see our wallets. He doesn't see the color of our skin. He doesn't see what society sees. We are equal at the foot of the cross. The problem's not with these two guys coming, these two individuals coming, but the response in verse 3. And you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, you sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, you stand there or sit here at my footstool. The richest man, he gets the best seats while the poor man gets the nosebleeds. The ushers see the guy with the fine apparel and say, you, you, you please sit, sit right here. You're going to be able to hear the best from this spot. This is a place of honor and a place of prestige. But then to the poor man in his clothes, eh, probably best if you just sat back over here. Don't, don't make yourself uh, too noticed. And there, there was two different standards. And I would hope for us, especially if this is your church home and you've come here for a while, that we would love on people no matter what. That we, we wouldn't have one response for one group of people and have another response for, for another group of people. But no matter what, no matter who the person is or what they're going through, what their background is, when they walk through the doors of Rocky Mountain Calvary, they feel loved because God loves them. And so that's what our heart is to be. And when anything else is expressed, it's damaging to the message of God. In verse 4, have you not shown partiality amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? James is now addressing the internal motivation from the actions. He's saying, what, what's your thoughts? What's the motivation of your hearts? So let me ask you that for, for just a moment. Why do we play favorites with a perf- certain individual? Why do we hold one higher than another? And let's stop pretending that we don't do this. <laughs> Maybe inside of church we tend to greet everybody the same way. But would you say with your neighbors, with your family, with your coworkers, that there's certain individuals that seem to just have your favor? And why is it? Is it because they're a certain age and you're attracted to that demographic? Is it because they're like you? Isn't it easy to have a favorite because they're like me and it's an extension of loving myself, right? They just get me. I get them. They're easy to, to be around, you know? Why is it that we would choose to have partiality? What's the motivation of the heart what was the motivation of this church that they would treat the, the rich man with a certain favor but then disdain the poor man? Well, the, the motivation becomes clear, doesn't it? They think that the rich man has something to offer them, but the poor man doesn't. And that's really in our sinful flesh, fallen apart from Christ, we give favor to somebody because we think they have something to offer us. We've sized them up. We've judged them. And we've said, okay, I, I think you're, you're worthy and you have something to contribute back. And we think about the words of Christ and it's challenging. He says, 
You know, why do you give gifts to people that are going to give you gifts back? Why do you just have people over to your house that are going to invite you over? Even the unbelievers do that. You know, God's calling us to a greater level of love that doesn't see through the lens of our own prejudice, but sees through the lens of God's love and says, I'm going to love on you because God loves you. I'm going to love on you because you're created in, in God, God's image. We go on into verse 5. Listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he's promised to those who love them? Has God not chosen that those who are poor of this world to be rich in faith? It doesn't mean that someone who's rich monetarily can't be rich in faith. What James is showing us, though, is that many times people that struggle economically are rich in faith in Christ Jesus. I've seen this to be true in Uganda as we've done some missions work over in Uganda. I think one of the great values in going to Uganda is what the Uganda believers have to teach and show us. It's mutual. It goes, goes both ways. And there's a deep trust and faith in the Lord. When, oftentimes when you're with a Ugandan believer and you get into a vehicle, they pray. And they ask for God's safety upon, upon that trip. Because it's unsafe to drive around in Uganda. And they don't take it for granted. They're very, very simple necessities. They're crying out to God and believing that God is going to provide, provide for their needs. I mean, they, they trust the Lord in a whole nother way than we trust the Lord. Just by living in this country, we're wealthy compared to a lot of countries, a lot of parts of the world. We have access to food banks. We, we have access to help. And there's so many things that are available to us. And I, I'm not saying that it's not difficult, that it's not challenging financially here sometimes. But when you really go and stare poverty right in the face and you see somebody who's loving Jesus trusting Jesus and loving others and they only have a few chickens and they're wanting to kill the chicken to feed you. You're like so humbled and you're saying, please do not do that, right? But they want to do that. They're rich in faith. And this challenges for this group of believers how they view the poor. There, there was something wrong in their understanding of the poor to where when the poor came into their church, they treated them differently than the way that they treated those that, that are rich. And it may not be poor for you that causes you to respond that way. But maybe it's a person that looks a certain way. And it's easy for you to size them up and put them in a particular category. But we want to examine the motivation of our hearts. Why do I respond to that person in that way? Why am I not seeing them through the lens of, of God's love? In verse 6, But you have dishonored the poor man, do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? Saying, you're dishonoring the poor man by the way that you're treating him. And he says, don't you realize it's the rich that oppress you? It's the rich that drag you into courts. And they blaspheme the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Honestly, when was the last time you were mistreated by somebody who was poor? Have they dragged you off to court? Have they sued you? Probably not. But the rich oppress. The, the rich are dragging you off to court. 
The rich are blaspheming the name of the one true living God. So James is talking pretty tough here, isn't he? He's saying, saying, why are you so concerned with the rich? Why are you so concerned with trying to have their favor? And you're not understanding a God's heart for, for the poor. In verse 8, it says, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. These are Jewish believers. They understand the Old Testament. They understand Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments, sum up the law of God. Jesus summed up the commandments even more clearly and love the Lord God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. The first commandments in the Ten Commandments deal with loving the Lord. And then the second half of the commandments deal with loving your neighbor. Love God with everything. Love your neighbor as yourself. And you fulfill God's law, his royal law, when you're loving your neighbor as yourself. And this begins to clear up this idea of partiality is how would you like to be treated? How do you want to be treated while you're here at church? Why do, how do you want to be treated at the grocery store? How do you want to be treated in your family? How do you want to be treated fill in the blank? I'd like to be treated with respect. So then we start to treat others with respect. We love our neighbor as we desire to be loved and cared for. In verse 9, But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressor. Ouch. Can we just say ouch all together? Yeah. It hurts a little bit, doesn't it? If you show partiality, what does it say? You commit sin. And if you commit sin, then you are a lawbreaker. You're a transgressor of of all of the law. Have we ever seen partiality that way? Have we ever seen favoritism in that context? God, I'm sinning against you. It's wrong for me to have favorites and partiality and treat this person one way and to treat another person the, the other way. Follow the logic here. It says, for whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he's guilty of all. We don't view it this way, okay? But what's the Bible saying? If you just stumble in one point of God's law, that makes you a transgressor. You're guilty of the law. We like to categorize a little bit. Let's see what verse 11 says. For he who said, do not commit adultery, has also said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So you might be down on somebody because they've committed adultery, but you've committed murder, which then makes you a transgressor of the law as well. But remember, partiality is a sin. So if I show favoritism, I'm a transgressor of the law, just like a murderer and just like an adulterer. Double ouch, right? I don't, I don't want to lump myself in with that group. I'd like to consider myself a sinner, but I'm a, I'm a safe sinner, you know, whatever that might be, right? I'm a sinner who just shows partiality. And then, then there's the really bad sin of adultery and, and murder. And if we can understand our depravity, if we can understand our own sin, I think it helps us to give God's mercy, give God's favor, and not be someone 
who plays favorites and lives in impartiality. If I, if I really believe I'm a transgressor of the law, this is not teaching a works-based salvation. The law brings us to Christ. This is the truth of Scripture. We all need the blood of Jesus. So someone who's committed murder, I need the blood of Jesus just as much as they do because I'm a transgressor of the law. You know, it's not God's looking down and he's going, ooh, you know, there's a rate 10 sinner and there's a, a rate one sinner. And that one really only needed a little bit of my sacrifice. It's like, no, you're all transgressors of the law. You all are worthy of my judgment and in turn have received my grace and mercy. And then that causes us to be able to give out the mercy and the favor of God. That's what this church was, was failing to see. In verse 12, so speak and so do is those who will be judged by the law of liberty. We're judged by the law. That's why the law drives us to Christ. It's our schoolmaster to show us our need for Christ's sacrifice. Notice the law is described as the law of freedom. God's law is to love him and to love others. That's what sums up the law. Law and freedom don't seem to go together, do they? The law of freedom. When we think of rules, we don't think of freedom, right? Brings you back to some nightmare classrooms that you used to sit in. But God says if we submit ourselves to his law, it's one of freedom. If we submit ourselves to loving him and loving others, it results in our freedom. Verse 13, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Meditate upon that for just a moment. If you don't show mercy, you're not going to receive mercy. To the degree that you give mercy is to the degree that you will receive mercy. Partiality is a form of judgment. Think about that for just a moment. The church was giving a judgment upon the poor and a judgment upon the rich by treating them with two different standards. They're saying the poor doesn't have value and the rich do have value. They've given their judgment. What should have they been doing? Giving God's mercy to all because they've received God's mercy. So that's a different way of thinking about partiality. That's a different way about thinking about playing favorites. You know, if you've been the object of partiality, it doesn't feel very good. When you've been on the ends with somebody, and then all of a sudden you're on the outs with somebody, when you were on the in, it felt really good. But then when you're on the outs, it felt really bad, and you're going, what changed? And you realize, I've fallen out of their good graces. I've fallen out of their favor. I've fallen out of their, their judgment. But then there's other relationships that we've all been in that are based on loyalty and the commitment of God's unconditional love. It's a faithful friend. Like, I'm going to be a faithful friend to you, whether you're fun to be around or you're not so fun to be around, right? You go, man, I'm sure glad God loves me unconditionally and God's put these friends in my life that, that love me unconditionally. And that's growth. That's faith. That's holding the faith, that's possessing the faith that God is glorified in when we can begin to extend that mercy to others 
without partiality, in an unconditional fashion. And I love the end of verse 13. It says, mercy triumphs over judgment. That's the message of the cross. The cross does help us to understand the judgment of God. Our sin is so serious before a holy God that he had to send his son to pay the price for our sin. That's judgment. But it's also mercy. God's mercy and his judgment meet. They embrace, they kiss at the cross and mercy triumphs over judgment. Where we could be condemned, instead, we're forgiven. God pronounces his forgiveness upon us as we trust in faith in what Christ has done for us. So what do we wear as believers? We wear mercy triumphs over judgment. How are we to relate to other believers? Mercy triumphs over judgment. How are we to relate with a lost and dying world? Mercy triumphs over judgment. I've been feeling like God is bringing Micah 6.8 back to my attention. I haven't been reading it in my devotions, but it just seems to be there. You know, have you ever had one of those verses where it's on your mind and then you see it in the restroom and then you see it on Facebook and then you see it in your office? You're like, okay, I think God's getting my attention. Restrooms are a strategic place to put verses because you spend some time there, don't you? But Micah 6 8 says, This is what I've required of you to do justly, to walk humbly with your God, to do justly, and to love mercy. And the love mercy is what's been resounding to me. And I've been being challenged by it. And I feel like the Lord is saying, Eric, love mercy. And at first I'm like, yeah, Lord, I love mercy. And I almost felt like the Lord, like, no, dummy, not when I give you mercy. But, but no, start love giving mercy to others. Just, just love it. Love dispensing mercy upon others. In the Proverbs, it says this, Proverbs 11, verse 17, the merciful man does good for his own soul, but he who is cruel troubles his own flesh. It's going to be good for you. It's going to be good for me to stop sizing up people, stop judging people, stop putting people in categories. That's God's job. Let God do the judging. Let us do the loving and begin to dispense mercy upon people. Now, what does mercy mean? It's to not give people what they deserve. That's hard, isn't it? It's hard to not call people to account. It's hard to be merciful. But remember, this goes back to understanding how much mercy have I received? How much forgiveness have I received from the Lord? How much depravity do I have in my own heart and and life? And God's not giving me the judgment that I deserve. In fact, he's giving me his grace and he's giving me his forgiveness. But giving mercy and loving mercy is not easy. It cost God something. It cost the sacrifice of his own son. And if you begin to walk in these footsteps of mercy, it will cost you something. It will cost me something. And won't necessarily be easy, but it's worthwhile. And I think it causes the mercy and the forgiveness of God just to be resound in our hearts and our lives. We think of Matthew 18 of the unmerciful servant. He was forgiven of about 20 million 
and he required his friend who owed him money to give him 2000 Could you imagine your $20 million in debt as we do the calculations? And you're forgiven completely and you walk out of that meeting being forgiven and you see your friend who owes you 2000 bucks, and you're like, pay up, sucker. Pay up right now, right? It just doesn't go together. It doesn't compute. It doesn't connect. Don't you realize you've been forgiven so much? Now extend this uh, to the Lord. I think there's a lot here for us to meditate upon. Favoritism is a judgmental spirit. A ju- judgmental spirit is evidence of us not receiving and meditating upon the mercy of God. Am I aware of the mercy that I've received? Second half of the chapter, second point, verses 14 through 26, is faith that's profitable. Faith that's not dead. James wants to make it crystal clear what real faith is by defining dead faith. So he's going to show dead faith to cause us to see what living faith is or what profitable faith is. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but doesn't have works? Can faith save him? So, is it profitable if someone says they have faith in Christ, but yet there's no works that accompany that faith? Is it profitable, and can it save him? Dead faith talks big, doesn't it? James is addressing a person that claims faith in Christ but there's no evidence of faith in their lives. We think that this is contradictory to Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, but they're really complementary. Ephesians 2 says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast, for we are his workmanship created unto good works. It's clear that we're saved by grace, and Romans 3.28 says, Therefore we conclude that a man's justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. So where do works come in? Why is there this challenge upon works? Because James is saying, if you have faith, it's going to be evident in your works. Not that you're perfect. None of us will be perfect till we go home to be with the Lord. But there's evidence of a changed life. It's like taking a rock and throwing it into a pond. What happens? There's a ripple effect. And when Christ comes into our life through, through faith, there's a ripple effect and there's a change that takes place. It's not faith or works that save you or faith and works that save you. It's faith that works. Faith is then seen by works that flow in and through our lives. So this is given an example of a profitable faith that's accompanied with works. Are you guys clear on that? I don't want anybody to be confused on it. You know, a lot of times people get to James chapter 2 and they thought, oh, I thought it was saved by faith through grace. It seems like James is saying that we're saved through our works, not just our faith. No, he's challenging us and he's saying, this is reality. If you have genuine faith, it will be accompanied with works. You know, it's going to be a natural outflow of faith in Christ. Verse 15, if a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace and be warm and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Please underline a brother or sister. James is talking about 
a brother or sister in Christ coming to you and saying, look, I don't have food. I, I don't have a jacket to be able to keep warm. I don't have the necessities, the very basic necessities to get through a day. If we ignore that, then where's our faith? If we ignore that need that's right in front of us, but it's speaking of the need of a brother or sister in Christ. You know, sometimes people read verses like this, and then anytime someone asks them for money, they feel obligated to give them money, and if they don't, they feel like they have dead faith. Well, God also calls us to be wise, and he's addressing here brothers and sisters in Christ that you're in relationship with. I'm sure that you know sometimes the wisest thing is not to give somebody money if they're begging for money, you know? To, to really say, what, what is the need? I need to evaluate the need. And would God have me to, to meet the need? And, and unfortunately, uh, you know, sometimes when people are asking, it doesn't, isn't used for the, for the best purposes. You know, my parents' policy always in this was, you know, they, they wouldn't ever just give cash to somebody who was begging, begging for, for money. I remember my parents on a few occasions saying, hey, want to go into the grocery store and I'll, I'll get you some food. And I, being pretty young, I remember uh, one homeless guy then responding to my parents and just saying, no, I want some liquor. I want to get drunk. I don't, want any, I don't want any food to eat. And so it was like, okay, that's clear, right? But that's taking the time to investigate if it's really a need and if that, that is meeting a need. So remember the context. This is speaking to of a brother or sister in Christ, somebody that you know well, you know it's a real need. You can't just then say, depart in peace, be warm and filled, let me pray for you. God, just keep them warm, keep them warm. God bless you, have a great night. What does faith do? Hey, let me go get you a coat. Let, let me get you some food, let me feed you. So dead faith ignores real needs, real needs. 1 John 3, 17 and 18 says, if anyone has material possessions, so God's blessed you with the material possession, and he sees his brother in need. Again, this is speaking of a brother or sister in Christ that has no pity on him. How can the love of God abide in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but actions and in truth. 1 John 3, 17 and 18. Verse 17, thus also by Thus also faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, is dead. Dead faith lacks works. Man, if you're alive, you're breathing. If you're alive, you're drinking. If you're alive, you're sleeping. If you're alive, you're eating, right? That's what you do when you're alive. So if we have living faith, it's going to be accompanied with works. When there's works in our lives, in, when there's no works in our lives, it indicates that our faith is dead. So let's examine our own lives for a moment. Could it be that God is challenging us tonight that our faith would be awakened? Maybe this reveals a, a lack of trust in the Lord because we're going, man, if, if I'm honest, I know that I'm saved. I know that I'm the, the child of God, but it's not being lived out in my life like I would intend. Thankfully, God honors honesty, doesn't he? To turn to him and say, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. To begin to get in the word, and we know that our faith is built up by being in, in the word of God. But our works, it does indicate the condition of our faith. 
In verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. So here, James is saying, you can talk all you want and claim to have faith, but I'll show you it with my actions. And God intends for our faith to be seen. The proof is in the pudding. This individual seems to love to talk theology, but there's no works to accompany it. And Matthew 5, verses 14 through 16 says, You are the light of the world. The city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. They see our good works and they glorify the Father in heaven. He gives some examples of dead faith here. Verse 19, you believe that there's one God. You do well, even that demons believe and tremble. You gotta love the sarcasm here if you're a fan of sarcasm. Anybody a fan of sarcasm? Anybody out there use sarcasm from time to time? Well, this is like the ultimate sarcasm here from James. He's like, you believe there's one God? You're monotheistic? Good for you. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. The demons are not atheists. They're not Buddhists. They're not Muslims. They believe and have a holy fear of the one true living God of the Bible. What are they lacking? They're lacking a relationship. They're lacking true faith that surrenders the heart to Jesus Christ. They believe in the existence of Christ. There's even a fear and respect there, but they haven't surrendered to Christ. Saving faith is an issue of the heart. In Romans 10, 9, it says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead you will be saved. Believe in the heart. That's what's lacking with with the demons. Salvation is trusting and resting in Christ. It's one thing to say that you believe airplanes exist, and it's another thing to go ride one, right? And these demons believe that Jesus exists, but they haven't trusted in Christ. Verse 20 But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? This is an important question. Do you want to know? It's always the tough one. Do I really want to know the condition of my faith? Do I really want to know that faith without works is dead? Now we get a couple examples of living faith with Abraham and Rahab. Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered Isaac, his son, on the altar? Genesis 22. Do you see that faith was working together with works, and by works, faith was made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see then a man who's justified by works and not by faith only. Don't get confused here. We're justified by faith, by trusting in what Christ has done. Then that faith results in works because Christ is in us and the fruit starts to flow through our lives. There's two things that are referred to by James. He quotes 
Genesis 15, 6, where he declares, the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. The moment that Abraham believed, God put it to his account as righteousness. Genesis 15. The years go forward. Abraham struggles when you read the account of his life. He lies about Sarah being his sister instead of his wife. He has sexual relationship with Hagar, his handmaiden. His life is not perfect. Genesis 22, he continues to believe in the Lord. God gives him the promised son Isaac. He says, offer your son upon the altar. And Abraham does it. As we look at the overall of Abraham's life, we don't see a perfect man, but we see a man who trusted God and it was evident in his life. Faith was accompanied with works. That's really hopefully the picture of our lives as well. You really know me, I really know you. We have our struggles just like Abraham. We believe God. But the overarching message of our lives is one of We trust Christ for salvation and Christ has transformed us and changed us into being a different person, a person that we weren't prior to knowing Christ as our Savior. It's also said of Abraham in Romans 4, verses 1 and 3, says, what shall we say that Abraham, our father, was found according to the flesh? For Abraham was justified by works. He has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. So Romans 4 really clears this up. Clearly he's saved by faith through grace, but the works were evidence of his faith. Abraham held nothing back from God. He put Isaac into God's hands Faith's expressed in surrendering all to God. What's the compliment that is given to Abraham in our text? He was called the friend of God. Oh man, that's the best compliment that God could give. This guy right here, he's my friend. He walks with me. He, he fellowships with me. The other is Rahab, this example of living faith. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works, when she received the message and sent them out another way. Rahab's faith corresponded, Rahab's works corresponded with her faith. She heard the word of God and she responded to the instructions that were given to her. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. A dead body without the spirit is dead. So faith without works is dead. This is probably morbid and it's just a personal opinion, but I think that there's some great value to open casket, at least in my experience. Because when you see someone that you love after they've passed away and you see their body, their corpse, you realize they're not there anymore. What caused them to be alive was their spirit. It's really who they really were. And they're with the Lord. And this was a tent it was never meant to be eternal, and it's temporary. And when you, when you see that, you, you, realize, you realize the reality of that. And James uses this as an example, and he's saying, you know what? If, if you claim to know Christ as your Savior, but there's no works to accompany it, 
once again, the proof's in, in the pudding. If a body's alive, it has the spirit inside of it. If someone has faith in, in Jesus Christ, then there's going to be some works that accompany it with us, with it. So in conclusion of James chapter 2, it's a faith without partiality. Search your heart and say, God, am I someone who plays favorites? Am I, am I the someone who gives my favor to this person and I withhold my favor to that, that person? You know, do I treat the rich this way and treat the poor this way? Or do I understand God's mercy? Do I understand the judgment that I deserve and I can give God's love and favor and unconditional acceptance to all that I meet? Guys, I, I gotta tell you, I really find Rocky Mountain Calvary to be a loving church. You know, I, I don't see this type of partiality taking place. I don't see wealthy being treat, treated one way and those that aren't wealthy being treated another way. There's always room for us to grow inside of this. You know, if, if you've been at this church for a while, we know what it's like to walk in here and have relationship. But remember when you were new to RMC, you walked in and you had no relationship. And every week, every service, God's blessing us with new people that have never been here before. And how do they feel? And how are they treated? And do they feel a warm, loving embrace? So we always want to be reminded of this. Maybe there's somebody in your family you really connect with, but there's somebody that you, you don't connect with. It's easy to put all your favor on the person that you, you do connect with. At work, is it possible that you are showing a little bit of partiality because you have one coworker that you really connect with and somebody that you don't connect with? I find this to be really challenging, to say, hold a faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that doesn't show partiality. And then a faith that's profitable, and that's a faith that's accompanied with works. A faith that's accompanied with works to be able to look at our lives and go, you know, Lord, if I'm honest, there's some work that needs to be done in my heart in this area of faith. Because there isn't the evidence of works that I would desire. When you believe something, you tend to act upon it. Like, we were pretty darn convinced about this eclipse on August 21st on Monday. You know, I, I geeked out. You know, I didn't think I was going to geek out, but I geeked out. Okay. I didn't realize how important those glasses were to get. Like, I, I was kind of the skeptic leading up to Monday. Like, yeah, right. Like, why do you need the glasses? It's going to be an eclipse, you know. How did the ancient people look at the eclipse? You know, I didn't get glasses prior to and. Thankfully, some friends did, and we went to their house and put on the glasses, and I was like, oh my goodness, I need the glasses. Like, this is phenomenal. Like, this is, this is awesome, right, to watch that take place. God just getting our attention by doing the abnormal. Like, the normal wasn't enough. Like, the sun rising every day is not enough. God's like, I'm just going to perfectly line these things up. But we believed Mountain Time from 1023... Then to 1147 was going to be the peak of the eclipse, lasting till about 115, to where we stood out there with our glasses. I made a, a box, 
you know, watched the little projection inside of the, the box. But yet a lot of times we can open God's word and kind of go, heard that before, or know that, or explain that away. Or, or, you know, that would be really good for my cousin Susie. I wish my cousin Susie read that verse. But to really step back and go, how much do I believe what I just read? You know? It's really refreshing to be around a new believer because they read it and they believe it. They read God's word and they believe it. It's like they don't know better. You know? And God may be challenging our faith a bit to say, hey, where's your faith? Do you believe my word? If you believe it, respond to it. If you believe it, count on it. That's the example of Abraham's faith. God said, Abraham, you and Sarah are going to have a child. Kept believing, kept believing, kept believing. Was too old to have children. Kept believing, kept believing. Didn't consider his own weakness. So we hold on. We believe everything that God says about himself. Everything that he declares in his word. Promises like all things work together for good to those that love God and are called according to his purpose. Okay, all's a big word. All things. Do I, do I believe that? Lord, I believe that about you. It's your character. It's your, your goodness. A couple of ways that I think we can be encouraged in faith. One is really dive into the word of God and your faith is built up. And the other is dive deeply into communion. And we're taking communion tonight not because it's a tradition, but because as we look at the character of God revealed in the cross, the giving of his son, we understand that God is good. We understand that God is trustworthy. We understand that we can surrender fully to God. And the more that we embrace the cross, believe the cross, live in the forgiveness of the cross, the more that our lives are, are going to be impacted. So let's stand and let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for your word, even though it's challenging for us. And we pray that you would show us areas of our lives that we show partiality inside of the body of Christ, inside of our families and our friendships. And God, we pray that we could learn to be ones that give mercy. We don't need to sort it out. We don't need to make judgments about one another, but we can allow mercy to triumph over judgment. God, would you help us to abound in your love? And God, this area of our faith and evaluating our faith, whether our faith is dead or our faith is, is living, or we're convicted and we're challenged and we want to grow in our faith and grow in trusting in you. We know as that faith gets refined and it becomes more genuine, then, then the works are going to follow. So would you meet us afresh in communion? We thank you, Jesus, that you died for us and that you rose again. So would you bless this time of communion in Jesus' name, amen.